0: We seem to have a division of uh, the auditorium. I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm leaning to the left. All right. We'll let Gary and Bob hold down the north face of the. All right. Thumbs up. Ready to go. According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You may turn to two places as we get started. Uh, Mark chapter 7 will be our main text, and then we will bring in details from Matthew 15. Mark chapter 7 will be the primary scripture passage, but with additional details brought in with Matthew 15. In Mark 7, we have roughly 23 verses of material. Some of them are a little bit longer, uh, from verses 1 through 23. In Matthew 15, it's verses 1 through 20. But as a rule, Matthew's verses are shorter than Mark's verses. That's just their style of writing. All right, before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each believer priest is equipped with the Holy Spirit, equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that it is this morning to assemble together. I thank you for this opportunity and for the believers that you have provided for the opportunity to come together and receive instruction. Father, we thank you for uh, both the, the men and the women that are available at this time, Father, with work schedules and school schedules and everything else taken care of. Father, you've provided all things necessary and we rejoice at that provision. Father, bless our study today, set aside distractions, give us concentration upon your truth, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we'll get a slideshow up and running here. No, don't do that. There we go. Episode 40 in the Galilean ministry is called Traditions Attacked, not my title, but I'm When you make use of somebody else's harmony, you kind of got to use their title, and I guess you can change a few of them here and there. This is one that I might want to change, but we'll go with it for now. Traditions attacked, and this is the counterpoint that Jesus Christ utilizes when he himself was under attack and uh, the critics that came to him condemning him for what it was that his disciples were doing. And we'll just pick up on it here. It follows after the episode where he was healing the multitudes there at Gennesaret and uh, where they were bringing people to him uh, and hoping that his shadow might cross over them or hoping that they might be able just to reach out and touch the fringe of his cloak and so forth. We read, I'll pick up here in Mark 7, 1, The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come. ...from Jerusalem, and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their hand, their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. Very lengthy parentheses. it's not in Matthew's account, but Mark gives the fuller explanation here. He says, "...for the Pharisees and all the Jews," those would be the Judaizers, "...do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come..." From the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order uh, to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? So this then becomes their mode of attack. They have tried attacking him on a number of other grounds. They had tried to criticize him in a number number of different ways. Uh, Obviously, it's very hard to criticize someone who's perfect (laughs) when you're set on finding areas of accusation, and there are none. And uh, he cannot be attacked for his doctrine or for his uh, godliness, his behavior. He is, of course, without sin. So they can find realms in which they can criticize him for not measuring up to their religious system. And uh, if that's the standard, well, then he is guilty as charged uh, for not measuring up to their religious standard of legalism. I always find it amusing when a person does not measure up to a religious system of legalism. uh, And yet they are perfectly fine in measuring up to God's absolute standard of righteousness, you ask yourself, well, what standard is that anyway? And to be fair, in this text, they're not really criticizing him. It doesn't say whether he followed the procedures or not. It says that some, notice some, not all, some of his disciples were not following those, uh, those practices and we're we're not told whether he followed the practices or didn't follow the practices. And um, anyway, I find that to be interesting. Um, so we have episode forty traditions attacked Matthew fifteen one through twenty, as well as Mark seven verses one through twenty three. This episode is not recorded in Luke, uh, the third of the synoptic gospels, nor is it brought up in the Gospel of John. We're right now in between John chapter six and John chapter seven. If you want to kind of keep track of things there in your uh, in your uh, harmony of the gospels. All right, we do note the context of this though that it comes at the peak of his popularity remember we had described the peak of his popularity that was passing from john chapter six uh more and they're they're starting to depart from him in droves and the moment that it looks like the tide has turned such as the feeding of the five thousand and now because they're not liking that message of the bread of life they're starting to depart from him all right so the lord's peaking popularity and absence from jerusalem prompted the Pharisees to dispatch a criticizing delegation to his location. And you have to view this, you have to view Mark 7 and Matthew 15 in the context of John 6, in the follow-up to the feeding of the 5,000, and in the follow-up to the bread of life message that started to drive them away. And I think if you fail to identify that, then you fail to recognize the, the really hinge event that this is in his ministry. He's been ministering for two and a half years. He has one year to go before the cross. And this becomes a key pivotal event. I was actually in Kiev exposed to a an alternate timeline, which actually... I've never never been exposed to before, but actually starts to, uh, as a proposition, it, it poses the idea of maybe a fifth year of ministry that shows not just three and a half years, the better part of four, which is the model I've been following all this time, but actually finds an extra Passover feast and actually finds... Uh, room for nearly a five-year ministry really four and a half years instead of five instead of three and a half years it doesn't change the crucifixion it kind of backs everything up because it still leaves uh friday april 3rd uh, of of 33 ad as the crucifixion date Uh, but it does back up the date of his uh of his baptism it does kind of back up by one extra year some of the other issues and so i find that interesting i haven't totally chewed through it. It's such a detailed chronological study. It's going to take weeks to try to digest it. But uh, anyway, I'm not likely 180 something, whatever lessons we are into the study to go ahead and change my whole chronology at this point. But uh, it is interesting that uh, I find some of that work to be astonishing. Anyway, it does not change the fact that this event follows on the heels of the Feeding of the 5,000 and the Bread of Life message. Whenever you date that, that is the turning point. That is the point where his popularity has peaked and now he's on the downhill slope where they're starting to abandon him. And you'll recall, if you hold your finger there, uh, remind ourselves of John chapter 6. Good to be back, by the way. I missed uh, teaching this class over the last couple of weeks. John chapter 6 and verse 66. How's that for 666 memory verse for you? John six sixty six. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. This is abandonment. And uh, you have the best Bible teacher in the history of the world and his students are abandoning him because uh, he's giving them some tough messages from the father. And so Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And he realized that when it says many of his disciples withdrew, that probably that's a kind way of saying most. (laughs) That the ones that didn't were really the remnant, the faithful remnant, the twelve, the seventy, beyond that, and uh, probably not many more. The vast majority of the five thousand are now uh, walking out angry. So he said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You know, if we leave you, what are the Bible teachers we're going to go to? Who else is the, the son of God, <laughs> the Christ, the anointed Messiah, savior of the world? Um, you're, you're rather a, a tough act to follow. And Peter here is, is saying, you know, there is no other teacher comfortable. Where are we going to go? But recognize that the popularity has peaked. The droves are starting to depart. Also, uh, Jesus had failed to go to Passover at Jerusalem. We commented on that. And when he was on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, up on the mountain feeding the 5,000, that it was a Passover season in which he was not making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Probably the first and only time that he had failed to do that. And, uh, you know, the nature of jackals the nature of uh wild dogs and beasts and so forth uh they they recognize when a time is ripe for uh for striking uh, when the time is ripe for picking at the bones and kind of creeping in from the edges and and uh i don't find it coincidental at all that they're going to dispatch these men all the way from jerusalem to track him down here in galilee when for the most part, the Judeans looked upon the Galilean region with some pretty well disdain. Uh, and uh, you realize they wouldn't be in these parts uh, if they didn't have to. <laughs> but they, uh, they want to go and they want to find grounds to accuse, and this is what they do. So back to Mark 7 then. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him, and when they had come from Jerusalem, when they had come from Jerusalem, gathered around him, and there's kind of a, the imagery of that is kind of a a surrounding, overwhelming kind of mob word picture there. And had seen that some, not all, but some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands. So they are there on a mission. They're there to find fault. Their one purpose is to observe and to observe things that they can be critical of. Notice they have no comment on any Bible class. They have no response to any doctrine that had gone forth. They have no, um, no point of discussion for anything related to the bread of life, to the uh, eating of flesh, drinking of blood, to anything about eternal life, to anything about believing in the Father and the one whom he has sent. Nothing in terms of content or substance. All they want to do is criticize the um, perceived failure to measure up to their religion. We'll discuss that here. Secondly, the Pharisees observed that some of Jesus' disciples did not observe traditional purification rituals. And that tells me that some of them did. <laughs> uh, we don't know which. We don't know if Peter, Andrew, James, and John, or uh, Bartholomew, or any. We don't know which ones did and which ones didn't. But both Matthew and Mark are clear that it is only some of the disciples that were not observing the traditional Purification rituals. Now we're going to talk about those rituals. We're going to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to see what those rituals were designed for, and what was uh, the intent of being clean versus unclean in the in the scope of ritual purity. Okay, because this has nothing to do with hygiene. This has nothing to do with um, washing uh, washing hands before you eat as a matter of of, of hygiene. It's a matter of health. See, their purification rituals were were centered in the concept of ritual, ceremonial purity before the Lord. To be in a standing of righteousness that allowed them to participate in holy things. Whether that was the temple or before that, the tabernacle participation, uh, partaking of a, a sacred meal with Levites or with the priests or any other type of sacred endeavor. All right, And it was something that only an observant Jew really was worked up about. The non-religious, non-observant, secular-minded, unbelieving Jewish person couldn't care less about the, the Pharisee system of of purity. So we'll say some about that as well. Now, which ones did, which ones didn't, we don't know. The idea that some of them, though, were observing the Pharisee traditions, I find to be interesting. Because they weren't themselves Pharisees, they, they were fishermen, carpenters, they were work workaday guys, they weren't experts, they weren't students, they weren't scholars, and yet some of them followed the Pharisee traditions. They were very uh, particular about where they went and what they did when they were done. The marketplace in particular, just being there left you defiled because Gentiles frequented it as well. And so, you know, you realize, ooh, I'm in an unclean place because there's Gentiles here conducting their business. So they get out of the marketplace and they have to do the ritual purification to put themselves back into this status of, uh, of, of pure, the status of set apart. And that's really what Pharisee means in the first place. They were the, the holy ones, the set apart ones, the ones that that went beyond the normal Jew in practices of purity. Now Mosaic said point A, Mosaic Law stipulated purification rituals. We'll spend some time in Leviticus today. I don't mind doing this because they're difficult passages anyway, and they're so alien to our way of thinking. Mosaic law stipulated purification rituals for leprosy, for skin diseases and other related aspects, what we call leprosy. Leviticus chapters thirteen and fourteen. For sexual discharges, Leviticus fifteen. As well as contact with a dead body in Numbers 19, all three of those circumstances demanded ritual purification in order to restore a person, a believer, to a status of ceremonial purity. All right, has nothing to do with hygiene, has nothing to do with um, with anything earthly. It has to do with your status as being either clean or unclean. And that division becomes important. So let's go back to Leviticus and spend some time here. Because I think, now, people get distracted by some of it. Because even though the emphasis is ceremonial and ritualistic, you can't deny that there are health benefits. <laughs> I mean, clearly there's going to be health benefits. The idea that they took their waste outside the camp to bury it in a military uh, encampment is obviously has massive benefits. And every military in the history of the world, from the Romans to the Greeks to others, I mean, they learned very quickly if they didn't have those procedures in place, they had disease in the camp. And their military would be wiped out by disease more so than the enemy uh, in short order. And so lots of cultures in the ancient world realized that there, were, there was value to similar procedures. But the primary emphasis in Leviticus is the, the ritual side, the holy side, the fact that their God is a holy God and they have a way to live that is going to reflect that. That they were going to have external ritual that would paint a picture of their internal holiness before a holy God and that's what these rituals of purification were all about all right so Leviticus uh, 13 Now, remember what do we have leading up to this Um, remember Leviticus is the worship manual for the for the Aaronic priesthood for the old testament priesthood under under law and they have the early chapters, they have everything dealing with the proper uh, sacrifices, with the ordaining of the priesthood, with consecrating the, the holy place, consecrating the priesthood. You have the sin of uh, Nadab and Abihu in, in uh, Leviticus 10. You have material in chapter 11 that's not really a part of my study today, but it would be at least worth recognizing that you've got the, the dietary restrictions in that chapter. And in that chapter, when you're talking about the dietary restrictions, what are the two things you're looking at? You're looking at clean and unclean. That's right. And and everything falls into one of two categories. It's either clean or it's unclean. There's no fuzzy middle ground. It's Something was either one or the other. All right? And is that, is that supposed to be dietary? Is it supposed to be nutritious? It's supposed to be presenting a standard that is what it is because God has declared it to be so. What's wrong with rabbits? What's wrong with pork chops? See, we can eat pork chops today. Why couldn't they eat it then? All right. It was a system of observance that was given to teach the principles. And they could either obey or disobey. See, not that the pig itself was unclean. Not because, we learn in the New Testament, nothing is unclean in and of itself. That, the, the, you know, the, the I can enjoy a good ham or pork chop or bacon or all of the above and whatnot uh, because I'm not under the, the dietary restrictions. So it's not um, nutritious oriented. It's not it has nothing to do with health. It's about obedience and teaching the principles. And so uh, they're laid out there in chapter 11. In chapter 12, you deal with uh, motherhood, and this maybe is a, a good backdrop as well to what we're headed with skin diseases, not that we're equating motherhood with skin diseases. What we're saying is that there are principles at work, and the principles are that we're human beings living in this world, and yet we are a holy people serving a holy God. And demonstrating the, the both and of, of those two situations becomes important so you notice in chapter 12 a woman gives birth there's a difference whether it's a male child or a female child if she bears a male child i'm reading from leviticus 12:2, she shall be unclean for seven days as in the days of her menstruation she shall be unclean just as uh when that time of the month arrives she is unclean ritually ceremonially it has nothing to do with hygiene it has to do with her ceremonial status Whether she is allowed to partake in the ritual before a holy God. Partaking of uh, the Passover supper, for example. Not if you're unclean. Why not? You mean a woman can't, can't eat Passover and participate if she just had a baby? That's right. She is excluded for that reason. Because the principles of ceremonial cleanness versus uncleanness are designed to illustrate and to teach. So you have the opportunity to abstain from Passover and teach why you're abstaining. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. That's the male child. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. That's beyond the seven she shall not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. Notice verse 4. She shall not touch any consecrated thing. So that has to do with the vessels, the, the drinking vessels, if she was to partake of a, of a, a, a drink or, or the, the, the consecrated bread, if she was going to have the opportunity to dine with the priests and the Levites and to have fellowship over the things of the Lord during such times. So I think if we if we can recognize in verse four the idea of entering the sanctuary, the idea of uh not touching the consecrated things, this is what you were excluded from by being ceremonially unclean. And it has nothing to do with, with uh hygiene or anything else. Of course, if it's a girl, then you double it. Um Verse 5, if she bears a female child, she shall be unclean for two weeks. As in her menstruation, she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days. All right, so that doubles the uh, length of time there. When the days of her purification are complete for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or turtle love for a sin offering. She shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. Now, is this confession of sin? Is this what's going on? Is this confession? Did she, is she carnal for having a baby? No. She's bringing a sacrifice. Yes. But this has nothing to do with being restored to fellowship. This has nothing to do with going from carnality to spirituality. This has the only thing this has to do is going from the ceremonial state of unclean to the ceremonial state of clean. And it required a blood sacrifice in order to do that. All right. Don't confuse this with confession of sin. This is not a sin offering. This is a offering that brings her from unclean to clean. Alright, so that's the backdrop then for Leviticus uh, thirteen and fourteen. Uh you'll note there's no washing that's prescribed. That the uh it is simply a passing of time and a blood offering that is the prescription for her restoration. There are washings though that are prescribed for these other items skin diseases, the sexual discharges, and the contact with a dead body. So in chapter 13, it's a long chapter, we won't read the whole thing, but um, we'll just grab a, a sampling of it here. Verse 2 says, When a man has on the skin of his body a swelling or scab or a bright spot and becomes an infection of leprosy on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons, the priest, the priest shall look at the mark on the skin of the body and the, uh, if the hair and the infection has turned white and the infection appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, if it is uh, it is an infection of leprosy, when the priest has looked at him, he shall be pronounced unclean. So the priest serve as a, um, I don't want to put this in medical terms because it's not medical, it's spiritual, but the priest serves as a like a triage type medic in giving a glance at the symptoms and in making a ruling and so he's pronounced unclean that's the diagnosis that's the pronouncement but again i want to try to steer away from medical terminology then um, if the bright spot is white on the skin of his body it does not appear to be deeper than the skin and the hair on it has not turned white then the priest shall isolate him who has the infection for seven days the priest shall look at him on the seventh day and if his eye uh, and if In his eyes, the infection has not changed and the infection has not spread on the skin. Then the priest shall isolate him for seven more days. The priest shall look at him again on the seventh day. And if the infection is faded, if the mark is not spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only a scab, false alarms, not leprosy. It's just a scab. You're okay. Then he shall wash his clothes and be clean. So there is a washing that takes place. He was never unclean. He was pronounced unclean or he was separated for the time. But false alarm, he is pronounced clean. He simply washes his clothes and he's clean. That is, does that mean he's, he's hygienic? No, it means that he's ceremonially permitted to enter into the sanctuary to touch the sacred objects to partake of sacred functions. Anyway, uh, but if it's spread further and he sees this after the seven-day period, the second seven-day period, then he's unclean. It is leprosy. And uh, leprosy has its own procedures. So there's a lengthy section on this. In fact, we have notes on this in the Through the Bible notebook when we went through this. Um, Nothing will put a congregation to sleep quicker than the leprosy passages of Leviticus. (laughs) All right. But I want you to notice it was a priestly function. Because this is a ceremonial matter. You know, they, he could have taken the tribe of uh, Manasseh and said, OK, you guys are the medics, right? Judah was the tribe of the, of the of, of leadership. It was the tribe of, of, of authority, of ruling. Uh, Levi was the tribe of, of ritual, the tribe of the priestly tribe. He could have designated another tribe and said, OK, you guys are the medic tribe or taken another tribe and said, you guys are in charge of this. You guys are in charge of that. This is not a temporal life issue. It's a spiritual life issue. And the tribe of Levi has the jurisdiction in this realm. All right. So we have the skin diseases in 13 and 14. We have the sexual discharges in Leviticus 15. Nothing keeps a congregation more awake than talking about sex in Bible class. So it's a quick remedy for the leprosy passages of. 13 and 14. Again, we realize that in many of these things, there's nothing sinful about this. If it's the proper um, sexual activity between a husband and wife within the boundaries of marriage. Uh, some of the terms here uh, reference um, discharges of, of, uh, of an uncertain sort. Uh, others of a normal sort. In other words, the menstrual blood is considered normal. The uh, the, the semen and sexual activity is considered normal. Uh, but the term for discharge may not necessarily be normal. Anyway, and there are procedures involved here. But simply notice that this includes normal activity within marriage. See, and so um, you have the idea that if Passover is coming up or the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths or Day of Atonement or other uh, times of Israel's worship where there is a, a a priority to worship the Lord, to assemble together in the solemn assembly, to uh, observe, uh, you know, husbands and wives there would realize, you know what, Passover is coming up. We need to abstain. We need to forego uh Marital activity, because we need to maintain our ceremonial cleanness so as to not disqualify ourselves, our children, our family from observing the the celebration that is of the of the Levitical system see which is similar to what we have in the New Testament where we're told in in first uh, Corinthians chapter seven that that husbands and wives don't they, they, the only reason why they would abstain is so that they can come together again for the purpose of prayer. That for a season, for mutual agreement, they realize they need to get their spiritual life back in order again. And we taught that in the uh, context of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So, um, anyway, all of this, uh, you've got the discharges, you've got the menstrual cycle. uh, The semen in verse 16. And, uh, and this is just normal. but And you'll notice, uh, let see, 16 through 18 it includes themselves, their garments, bed linens and all the rest. Um, but what's the process? Do they have to butcher an animal? Do they have to go to a priest? Do they have to offer a, a free will offering? None of that. Uh, they shall both bathe in water and be unclean until evening. That's all it is. They have their own ritual. Between themselves, their own cleansing process, and uh, and at evening a new day starts and and you're fine. You're you're sanctified. You're uh, you don't have to go sacrifice an animal or or anything like that. Okay. So there are different procedures. And then there's verse 19 and following. There's the menstruation process there that the woman has to observe every month. All right. And then contact with a dead body in Numbers 19. Get over to Numbers. Obviously, during warfare, your soldiers have a hard time staying clean. (laughs) That they have a process at the end of an engagement or at the end of a battle where uh, they've disposed of the enemy and and uh, then they have this seven day period where they are consecrating themselves but we read in numbers nineteen eleven, the one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days uh and remember when uh you know they, they were making those excuses you know jesus i'd love to come follow you but i got to go bury my father right so uh jesus said allow the dead to bury the dead we got work to do and if you're going to be observant over the seven day deal then uh Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to that point. Uh, but you're unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from uncleanness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. And then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. So what if you miss day three? <laughs> you know, oh, missed day three. What do I do now? All right. Anyone who uh, touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself, notice what he does. He defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. See, again, the status of clean versus unclean is whether or not a person is permitted to enter into the sanctified locations, to partake of the sanctified meals, to utilize the utensils and the Uh, the the vessels, remember the the great drinking party that Belteshazzar threw in in Babylon. He took the drinking vessels and the cups and the plates and he he threw this great big party. All right. So um, if he does not cleanse himself and if he does not purify himself, he defiles the tabernacle of the Lord and that person shall be cut off from Israel. In other words, you are expected to execute capital punishment. Remove him. See, this is the same penalty for a murderer, for a rapist, for any number of other uh, uh, capital offenses. You realize how seriously God takes the ceremonial law. All right. It goes on down through verse 19. All the procedures there. So, this is the background now for the Pharisees. Point B. Jewish traditions amplified and expanded Mosaic Law. Jewish traditions amplified and expanded Mosaic Law. And they did so intentionally. They called it the fence. Jewish traditions amplified and expanded Mosaic Law into a systematized and intensive structure for maintaining ritual cleanness. In fact, the sixth division of the Mishnah is focused on purities in 12 lengthy sections. Now, the Mishnah was not yet written at the point when Jesus was ministering. The Mishnah comes 200 years later. But the oral traditions upon which the Mishnah was based were very much alive and functioning during Jesus' day. The sixth division of the Mishnah, and I'll I'll bring it up on the screen and show you here in a moment. So they amplified and expanded Mosaic Law, even though they were warned, don't add to this law. Don't take away from this law. All right. They did anyway. They did abundantly. They added all kinds of things to it. Now, they they used little code words and they found gimmicks. They played semantic word games in order to say, "Oh no, we're not adding to the law." But the functional reality was they were adding to the law. And it is just as gimmicky as the Catholics telling you, "Oh, we don't worship Mary." Because they played semantics in word games and they've created this idea that, well, we we venerate her. We don't worship her. And by playing the word game, they can deny that they're worshiping Mary. But the functional reality of it is they're worshiping Mary. They're praying to Mary and they're hailing her as the queen of heaven, the one full of grace that's supposed to provide for their every need. And so the word game gimmick doesn't work for them any more than it worked for the Pharisees. They had added to the law. Now, they called it a fence, and their goal was to say, um, let me draw this up here for you. There we go. And here's the idea. Here's the, the theory. The theory says, okay, here I am. Here's the law. Am I in focus? Okay. And the law draws a line. All right. They call it a fence. And, for example, um, pick any, pick any commandment, your favorite, thou shalt not steal. Well, thou shalt not break the Sabbath, any commandment. And there's the law. There's the fence. And if you cross over it, you've broken the law. Right. You've stolen. You've committed adultery. You've broken the Sabbath, whatever you've done now. What the Pharisees did, they said, we're going to build a fence. And we're going to build it this side of the law. And so this is going to be, we're not going to call it the law. We're just going to call it our traditions for observance. Okay? And if you break it, you've broken the traditions. You've violated the traditions for observance. Okay, But see, the point being is that if you can stay on this side of the traditions, you're that much safer. You're not going to cross the line and break the law. Okay, That's the theory anyway. It's almost like in the old uh, East German border. You had the, the, the border between East Germany and West Germany, but then you had the 1K zone, right? The green zone, if you've experienced that. And the 1K zone was a line that was one kilometer from the border. And this was completely off limits to any military personnel. You were forbidden from entering into the 1K zone. And the purpose for that was to keep you from crossing into (laughs) East Germany. Right. Becoming an international border crossing incident. See, I actually have personal experience. (laughs) I know of which I speak. And... uh, Fortunately, when we got arrested, it was coming back. They did catch us in the 1K zone. That much we confessed to. But uh, we, had, we didn't tell them which side of the 1K zone we entered it from when they, uh, when they took us into custody. Anyway, here's the goal. Now, the problem with legalism, though, is you confuse the tradition with a commandment. And you exchange the tradition for the commandment. And you say, this now is the commandment. And if somebody else can build a fence a little bit further out, then he's more holy than you. Because he's going that much farther. Say, you're only observing this tradition. Ha, I'm observing this tradition. Or, I'm observing this tradition. And see, I'm further away from violating than you because I am under these self-imposed. And the Pharisees had the furthest fences out. All right. That's that's the simplest way I can explain this. And so this is how. Notice. Was there anything we read in Leviticus that talked about a marketplace? Right. About if you go to the marketplace, you're ceremonially unclean and you better wash yourself and you better There was nothing in there. There It was was about leprosy. It was about sex and other related bodily functions. And touching a dead body, right? Nothing about going to the marketplace. Nothing about um, doing a ritual before eating. And this this was just a normal meal. This wasn't like they were going into the temple and partaking of, of Passover. They were just eating. They were just, you know, working, teaching the word of God. Get hungry after a day's work. Probably, you know, popping a cold one or whatever they were doing. And the Pharisee said, you're not following the ritual, the Pharisee ritual. See, that's what this is all about. All right. Let me bring up. The Mishnah and give you an idea about this. And let's see what section we're in here. This is the first division on agriculture. There are actually parts within the first five divisions that address this, but it really gets saved until the sixth division on purities. And uh, it's broken down into 12 uh, sections. The first one's called Kilim, And uh, they had the biggies and the not-so-biggies. The biggies they called the fathers of uncleanness. Those are the things that will cause you to become unclean. And the fathers of uncleanness are the creeping thing, semen, one who has contacted uh, corpse uh, uncleanness, The leper in the days of his counting, sin offering water of insufficient quantity to be sprinkled. Lo, these render man and vessels unclean by contact, and earthenware vessels by presence within the vessels contained airspace. They do not render unclean by carrying. Above them, carrion and sin offering, water of sufficient quantity to be sprinkled. For they render man unclean through carrying to make his clothing unclean, but clothing is not made unclean through contact. You follow that? (laughs) Yeah, these guys invented lawyer language. Above them, he who has intercourse with a menstruating woman, for he conveys uncleanness to what lies beneath him. Uh, Above them, the, the flux of the Zab. In case you don't know who a Zab is, you can click on it. A Zab is a person who has suffered a flux and is deemed unclean. And his spittle, his semen, and his urine... And the blood of the menstruating woman, for they render unclean through contact and carrying. Above them, the saddle. Remember when uh, Rachel was trying to hide the household idols, and she had them in her saddlebags, and then she sat on the saddlebags and said, "Oh, sorry, Father, I'm, the manner of women is upon me, and I'm unclean." Okay. For the saddle is unclean under a heavy stone. Above the saddle, the couch. For touching it is equivalent to carrying it above the couch, the Zab. For the Zab conveys uncleanness to the couch, but the couch does not convey equivalent uncleanness to the couch. Alright, so the Zab can make the couch unclean, but anyway. Above the Zab are the Zabah, feminine of Zab for she renders him that has intercourse with her unclean for seven days. Anyway, this goes on and on and on and on. And this is only the first section. This is the Kelim section. Ten levels of uncleanness pertain to man. And it breaks down those ten levels. And uh let's see if there's some of these that I think are kind of fun. If a limb on which there is not an appropriate amount of flesh separated from him It renders unclean through contact and through carrying, but does not render unclean in the tent. So it depends on how long a stick you're carrying it. There are ten degrees of holiness. The land of Israel is holier than all lands, even holier than Texas. Sorry. And uh, for they bring, and what is its holiness? For they bring from it the omer and the first fruits and the two loaves which they do not bring thus from all lands. The cities surrounded by a wall are more holy than it, than the land. For they send, out, uh, they send from them the lepers, and they carry around their midst a corpse so long as they like. Uh, within the wall of Jerusalem is more holy than they. The temple mount is more holy than it. Uh, if you don't know what Zabim and Zabot are about, you can click on it and they tell you. That's plural of Zab, masculine and feminine. Anyway, the rampart is more holy than it. The court of women is more holy than it. The court of Israel is more holy than it. The court of the priests is more holy than it. See, we're getting closer to the holy place. If you notice that. <laughs> all right. This is all under Kalim. Then you have Ohalot about corpses, Negaim about the plague, Parah with their livestock. Thirteen matters regarding the carrying of the clean bird. Now, the bird itself was clean until it died. Now it's dead. So we need to debate that until the cows come home. Six grades in gatherings of water. Water in ponds. But what happens if a corpse falls into the water of pond you know the, the pond water water of rain drippings <laughs> which have not ceased that's right a pool of water which has 40 seahs a smitten water that is spring water but what if an unclean person went skinny dipping in the spring water <laughs> see the idea now, now we we ta- we say that this is ludicrous, but churches practice it today, and they practice it today in what is called in modern times primary, secondary, and tertiary separation see and who do we separate from? you know do we separate from uh, a person who who um is Actively living in sin. Do we separate from a person who is not practicing a biblical lifestyle? And we've gone through the principles of church discipline and we've warned him. and We finally we've expelled him and all the rest of that. Under what principles do we separate from a brother? And what about secondary separation? Because. Secondary separation means okay. You got let's call him uh, Reginald, right? Reginald is in reversion. Reginald is living in sin. He's got three mistresses and all the rest. He's not living the Christian way of life. And we've warned him. We've thrown him out of the church. Okay, we're separating from Reginald. And we're all in agreement. Whole church is in agreement. We need to separate from Reginald. But let's say there's um, another believer in the church. We'll call him. Uh, Uh, who Archibald okay Archibald Archibald is a bit of a compromiser Archibald's a bit of a touchy-feely forgiving kind of liberal kind of guy and he says oh come on Um, and he does not observe the separation he maintains contact he uh, spends time with him or whatever okay now we have to separate from Archibald because we have to separate from somebody who's not separating from somebody who needs to be separated from. Okay? Secondary separation. Tertiary separation is what if you have somebody, Gomer, who does not separate from Archibald because Archibald did not separate from... You see where this is going? And there are churches that practice tertiary Separation say uh, where believers get really wrapped up over uh, well it's it's a principle of not working for a company if that company has business practices that you don't like or you think are unbiblical or are unbiblical, say say well, this company offers uh, health benefits to homosexuals, so because of that, I need to separate. There are believers that that make that a priority, say. Anyway, we're using the Mishnah because it applies to the exact case here in, in, in Mark. It applies to the Pharisee legalists of Jesus' day. But we have our own equivalents today. And what I'm saying is that each one of us needs to decide and be convinced in our own mind. And I have no problem with believers living according to their convictions. None at all. And I know believers that won't purchase from Amazon.com because of Amazon.com's uh, politics or, or approaches to things. And they, they, they'd they rather buy from Christianbook.com. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. And, and they're willing to, to spend more money at a higher price because they don't want to give Amazon their business. Fine. Or they don't want to give Barnes and Noble their business. Fine. You make that choice. And you're convicted of it, and that's what you want to do. See? I'm more relaxed about it and say, you know what? If it's got a lower price, I thank the Lord for the lower price. I say, thank you, Lord. And uh, if, if if that means that, that uh, you know, Starbucks makes money off of me, well, <laughs> I, I happen to like caramel macchiato. Are they a godless company? yeah, but you know what? this whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and um, I think if we can have a little bit more relaxed attitude and allow believers to live according to their convictions i don't I don't criticize believers for their convictions, and that's the whole principle in Romans fourteen. Hopefully they don't criticize me for my convictions or lack thereof. My relaxed attitude, hey, take the cheapest price. I'd be eating meat sacrificed to idols, too, if I lived in old, old, you know, first century Corinth. You bet I would. I'd go right into that Aphrodite temple and buy myself whatever meat and walk. I'm not participating in the Aphrodite idolatry, don't get me wrong. But I'm going to eat that meat because it's the cheapest meat around. It's pre-cooked. <laughs> right? Anyway, different believers come to different convictions. And I'm not going to be critical of any believer living according to their convictions. And if it means they quit a job because of uh, they were uncomfortable with that business, then they were uncomfortable with that business. Go work somewhere else. you got to live according to your convictions. At the same time, try to understand that maybe other believers don't share your convictions, and it doesn't mean that they're heretics. and It doesn't mean that they're godless, and it doesn't mean that they're wrong means that they have different convictions. All right. So, anyway, there's more on this. There's 12 of these sections here on uh, utensils. Anyway, these were what the Pharisees were all worked up about. Because the disciples, not all of them, some of them, were not going through the ritual in... Cleansing their hands and becoming, they weren't becoming ceremonially clean before they ate dinner. Now, the the law didn't require them to. The law required them to be ceremonially clean before they went into the temple. Or before they observed uh, a a sacrifice. Or before they engaged in in, uh, a spiritual life function. But you see, when they moved that fence, they said, we're going to be ceremonially unclean. All the time, every day, for everything. That way, we'll never violate the law here. See, And that was the title. That's what the term Pharisee comes from. They were the, the pure ones, the set-apart ones. All right. A.T. Robertson has a good citation for this matter. If you read his uh, word pictures in the Greek New Testament. The tradition of the elders. Tain Paradison tain presbyterum. This was the oral law handed down by the elders of the past in ex-cathedra fashion, meaning carrying the authority of of, uh, sovereignty of God's word. Later codified in the Mishnah, hand-washing before meals is not a requirement of the Old Testament. It is, we know, a good thing for sanitary reasons, but the rabbis made it a mark of righteousness for others at any rate. This item was magnified at great length in the oral teaching. The washing the verb niptontai tie in the middle voice, the uh, washing of the hands called for minute regulations. It was commanded to wa- in, in, even describing the fist that you would make so that you don't get your hand dirty by washing the other hand. Um, minute regulations. It was commanded to wash the hands before meals. It was one's duty to do it after eating. The more rigorous did it between the courses. The hands must be immersed. Um, And and actually the verb that's used in this text and in Matthew is baptizo. It's the verb to baptize. It's the verb to immerse. Same verb we have for our baptism service. So uh, they weren't baptizing their hands before dinner. Uh, So the hands must be immersed. Then the water itself must be clean. Remember, what kind of pond did you draw it from? What kind of utensil was used to draw it from the pond? The water itself must be clean, and the cups or pots used must be ceremonially clean. Vessels were kept full of clean water, ready for use. And it's largely thought that that's what those vessels were doing when Christ turned the water to wine. Those six large stone pots were probably there for this uh, pathetic Pharisee ritual process. Christ said, we don't need any of that. We need more wine. (laughs) You know, you don't have to be ceremonially clean to go to a wedding. You don't need those. We need wine right now. It's a time of celebration. So it went on ad infinitum. Thus, a real issue was raised between Jesus and the rabbis. It was far more than a point of etiquette or hygienics. The rabbis held it to be a mortal sin. The incident may even have happened in a Pharisee's house. All right. So anyway, that was from A.T. Robertson, great uh, Greek scholar from the early 20th century. We will come back to this with Christ's answer in point three. He answers them by not answering. He does not explain why some of his disciples don't wash their hands, why they don't engage in the ritual. He doesn't even answer it. He just turns the tables and says, why do all of you say, don't ask why some of my guys break your traditions. Why do all of your guys break the law of Moses? And he just turns it, turns the tables, and uh, highlights how the Pharisees failed to live up to God the Father's expectations. So we will deal with that next Wednesday morning, Lord willing, rapture pending. Any questions? Anything dealing in Leviticus or purity? or? Yes, ma'am, Robin. That's a great question, isn't it? I I read that once. I think she had to do both. I think she had to do, you know, for twin boys or twin girls or one of each. I think she had to do both time periods. That's a great question. I I looked that up one time. I think she had to do the seven days for the boy, the 14 for the girl, the 33 and the 66. Yeah, I I seem to remember that from when I looked that up. Great question. (laughs) All right. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this day. Father, I thank you that uh, our stage of your plan is more concerned with the reality and not the external ritual. Father, we understand that that stage had its purpose. It served its role. It, It demonstrated the inability of man to measure up. I thank you that we function under grace and the reality. I thank you that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are ceremonially clean at the moment of our confession, and I thank you for that. Father, we thank you for, again, uh, bringing this class back. Uh, We missed it the last couple of weeks. Thank you for bringing it back together. We uh, look for your continued guidance and direction as we continue in this study. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.